congregation, brothers and sisters, Jonah, what do you think of when you hear that name? The whale, right? Jonah and the whale or the great, or the great fish. Most people are familiar with that story. It's an incredible story. We have many questions about it, perhaps even some reservations. For example, how could someone survive three days inside such a fish? What kind of fish would it have been? To some people, it seems all a bit much. As a result, the book of Jonah is often treated as an allegory or a myth. But if that were the case, then the Lord Jesus himself would not have given it credibility by comparing his three days and three nights in the grave to the three days and three nights Jonah was inside the fish. Jesus treated it as a real story, and so should we. But the fish as such is not the story. It's only incidental to the story. What is the real story? What is the message? Well, that's what I want to preach to you about this morning. The theme is as follows. The Lord chooses Jonah to be his humble witness in a wicked world. And then we will look at two things. The Lord's compassionate concern. And then secondly, Jonah's arrogant indifference. So then the Lord chooses Jonah to be his humble witness in a wicked world. The text says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. The word of the Lord came to him. That's a wonderful beginning, isn't it? For God spoke directly to a sinful man like Jonah and calls him by name. Jonah is no stranger to him. He knows his name, his family, everything about him, just like he does with us. And he especially knows what a sinful man Jonah is. And yet the Lord wants to use that man to advance his kingdom. Isn't that great? I certainly think so. He wants to use Jonah... But he also wants to, each, wants to use each and every one of us to further his kingdom. As a matter of fact, that's why he created us. To magnify his glorious name in the midst of this sinful world. Who exactly is this Jonah? Well, there's one other place aside from this prophecy where we read about him in the scriptures namely in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. From this passage, it is clear that Jonah, who lived during the reign of Jeroboam II, was already an established prophet before he received the call, the call to go to Nineveh. We are told in that passage that he had prophesied that the borders of Israel would be restored to its former dimensions which is exactly what happened. His prophecy became true. During Jeroboam II's reign, the greatness of Israel rivaled that, if not surpassed, the splendor of the time of King David and Solomon. It is a time of prosperity 
and peace and security. There were no external threats to his existence. The nations were content to let Israel be. Everything was coming up roses. Israel didn't seem to have a worry in the world. They had it made. There was plenty of food. There were great riches. They were strong. Like today, it was a time of prosperity and relative peace. Indeed, as we read through the prophecy of Amos, who was a contemporary of Jonah, and then you find how good the people had it at that time. In Amos, we read that Jeroboam had won many battles against the smaller nations around them, and that Israel had become a powerful nation, more powerful than at any other time in its history. And we also read about the exceptionally large merchant class in Israel that possessed great houses of dressed stone and decorated with inlaid ivory work. Amos tells us they had pleasant vineyards with their trailing grapevines and luscious fruit. They ate and drank to their heart's content. They anointed themselves with the finest oils and listened to music while lying on fine couches. They were also deeply religious, for they celebrated their religious festivals with many blood offerings and with an elaborate choral worship. But Amos also tells us something else. He tells us about the terrible moral bankruptcy of Israel. Even though outwardly they were religious, there was flagrant injustice everywhere. Judges could be bought with a piece of silver. The rich oppressed the poor and the weak. The majority of the people of Israel did not really serve the Lord. Oh, sure, outwardly they did. They went through the motions, but their hearts were far from the Lord. They were a haughty, proud people who looked down on others in a lesser state. They did so with their fellow countrymen, but also, as we read in Amos, they also did that to the nations round about them. Now, why do you think they did that? Why do you think they felt that way? Well, because they thought they deserved it. After all, is Israel not God's favorite nation? Are they not his people? There was no humility. They felt secure. They had a great sense of entitlement. And do you know why they thought that way? Because they thought that they deserved to be God's special people. They thought that they were better than anybody else and that for that reason God smiled on them. How arrogant and delusional. But do you know what is even more disturbing? Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, shared that thinking. He too thought that Israel was such a great country and that they deserved that status. Jonah lacked humility. He lacked insight into himself and into God's people. He was unaware of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his nation. 
So it's no wonder that Jonah did not understand why God sent him on the mission that he did. He could not understand why God would send him to the wicked and decadent country of Assyria, which in his opinion deserved to be destroyed. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was one of the greatest and most splendid cities of that day. It had a storied history and had been in existence already for thousands of years. It was there that many Babylonians, emperors throughout the ages had their palaces. And the first time that the city is mentioned is already just after the flood in Genesis 10 verse 11 where we read that Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, was the one who built it. At the time of this prophecy, the city boasted a population of some 120,000 inhabitants. And it occupied an exceptionally large area. The administrative district was between 30 and 60 miles across, so between 50 and 100 kilometers. It took a three-day journey to go from one end of the city to the other. It was a magnificent city. But now it says in our text that the wickedness of that great city had come up before the Lord. Amazing, isn't it? Isn't that wonderful? And we say, well, what's so wonderful about that? Why is it so wonderful that their wickedness came up before him. Well, just imagine if that wasn't so. Just imagine that God would overlook the sin of that city or that he would overlook the sin of any, other, or of any city. For do you know what that would mean? That would mean then that God no longer cares. That would mean that he would then leave them in a miserable state. And when God does that, when he no longer cares about the wickedness of mankind, then he gives them over to their own filth, to their own state of condemnation, and then there is no longer any hope. And so it's a good thing that the Lord God cares deeply about this whole world and what happens in it. He cares about what happens in Canada, too cares about what happens in the USA. He cares about what happens in the countries in Africa, Australia, China, even Afghanistan and Sudan. He cares deeply about every single nation on earth. And so we have to be careful. But we too are a sinful people. He also cares about my wickedness and your wickedness. Not so that he can scold us or condemn us, but to save us. He wants us to call upon his name and ask for mercy. And he does not just want that from you and from me, but he wants that from everyone in the world. It is not so that God just cares about the believers and especially about us as Reformed believers. We may think that only we are on his prayer list and not others. That's not true. And that's clear from this text. 
When he sends us his warning, he sends them to all of us, believers and unbelievers alike. And he sends them in the form of earthquakes and calamities and viruses to everyone in the world. Why? Because he's cruel? No. So that we repent. Because the destruction of the world is coming. And only those who believe and call upon him will escape and be saved. As believers, we know about the gospel of salvation to all those who believe in him and who call upon him in mercy. And so shouldn't we therefore also tell others about why calamities and illnesses and viruses come upon us? To tell them that God sends us these things because of our sins and to warn us. Jonah thought that God should not have anything to do with the wicked people of Nineveh. Whatever they have coming, they deserve. Let God care about his own people, not the others. They already stand condemned, don't they? Well, brothers and sisters, if that's what you also think, then you're wrong. God cares. When a nation sins, then that sin deeply disturbs him. He does not overlook their sins. And that's why he sends his warnings in so many different forms. There's more to life than what we have here on this present earth. There's more to what you just see and experience. God is in control. And God is going to bring this earth to a glorious end. And so he sends us warnings. And he sends them to you and to me as well. He reminds us that we need to repent daily from our sins. For there may be secret sins in our lives that in the end may destroy us. Oh sure, we may think that we can hide them. But ultimately you can't. One way or the other, the Lord will confront you or me with our sin. And he will not leave you alone. He will send you a storm in your life to wake you up. He does that because he wants you and me to ask for forgiveness. And he wants you and me to turn to him and to trust him. That's what he wants for all people on earth too. You see, the Lord knows everything. Your personal sinfulness is known to the Lord. He knows all about you. Remember Psalm 139? We just sang from that. David asked there, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David knows God is everywhere. We cannot escape his presence. And that's why David also asks that the Lord God search him and know him. For David knows that if God were to overlook his sins, then that it would be ap- that, that it would be absolutely hopeless for him. He says in verse 23 and 24 of that psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. 
Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, with you boys and girls, do you ever pray that? In your personal prayer, do you ever pray to the Lord that you want him to discover if there be any offensive way in you? Well, that's what the Lord God wants you and me to do. He wants us to realize our own depravity. For you do not want God to pass over your sins. If he does pass over them, it wouldn't be well with you. If you do not allow him to point out your sins to you, then it may come a time when it's too late. If you persist in your sin, if you want to live in your sins, and if that's kind of life you lead, then you won't be a very effective witness in this world either. For why would anyone listen to someone who is blind to his own sins and who thinks that he's better than others? They won't listen. The Lord God uses humble people, people who understand their own sinfulness and who rejoice because of the salvation they have received. For only such people will humbly reach out to others in love and compassion. Only they will deeply care about others, just as God does. But we don't just live for ourselves or within our own community. We cannot hide out in our own little corner of the world and keep our treasure to ourselves. We must share the glorious gospel of salvation. We must do it in wisdom and patience and not judgmentally. For we are not the judge of the world. It's also what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5. He says that although we live in this world, we do not judge the world. Only God does. Ultimately, it is God who holds all men to account, and he is the one who judges them. But he does want to use sinful men to proclaim his wonderful word so that others may also know him and repent from their sins and worship him. It's for that reason that he wanted to use Jonah. The Lord said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, to that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah is sent to the heathen nations to proclaim God's message. But Jonah has a different mind. Second point, Jonah ought to have been happy that the Lord God came to him and that he wants to use him to bring his message of repentance, that God chose him especially for the task to bring God's word to that heathen city. But instead, he refuses to do what he is told. Jonah goes in exactly the opposite direction as the Lord tells him to go. He goes to Joppa on the coast, and there he buys a fare and sets sail for the city of Tarshish, a city likely on the coast of modern-day Spain. Now, why do you think he did that? Do you think that perhaps he was afraid, afraid that he could not do what he is told to do by the Lord for one reason or the other? Well, that's not very likely. Jonah appears to be the bold type. 
He's not like Moses who protests when God commissions him. Moses was afraid that he would not be able to do it. He wanted God to send his brother Aaron. Jonah's not like that. As appears from the rest of the book, Jonah is quite a confident man. He is much taken in with his own worthiness and the worthiness of his fellow church members. From the letter, it's also clear that Jonah is not a person who sees his own shortcomings, nor the shortcomings of his own people. No, Jonah is not afraid. Something else prevents him. What could that be? Could it be perhaps that he thought that the Lord God would not be able to follow through on his threat to destroy that city? And that he would then be making a fool of himself? Well, brothers and sisters, that cannot be the case either. For there's nowhere any evidence that Jonah does not believe that the Lord is not able to do what he says he will do. No, Jonah believes in the power of God. He saw how the prophecy was fulfilled in that the glory of Israel, the borders of Israel were restored to its former splendor. And so what, the, what is the problem then? Well, the problem is this. Jonah is loath to do what the Lord tells him because Jonah does not think that God should send him to that heathen nation. As I said, Jonah is a proud Israelite. Jonah cannot understand that God would have anything to do with that heathen nation. And furthermore, Jonah does not want that city to repent. He hates the Ninevites. Why should they have a second chance or any chance at all? Do you see what the problem is, brothers and sisters? His problem is that he very clearly sees the sins of others, but he does not see his own sin or the sin of his own nation of Israel, the covenant people of the Lord. It's also a warning for us. When we see the sins of others, we first have to see our own sins. And if that's how you see yourself, then you won't come across arrogantly either. You'll come across humbly. And you'll be much more effective. Ultimately, Jonah's action was that of unbelief. Jonah did not believe that God's mercy is as great as it is. He thought that his mercy was more for Israel, for the church, than for the rest of the world. But God wants all kinds of men to come to repentance. And that is why he also sent his only son. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He sent his son into the world to deal with sin and the effects of sin. One of the problems we all have is that in too many ways we take our blessings for granted. We do that all the time. But we know that God has chosen us as his beloved children. We believe that God's favor rests on the church. And that's certainly true. 
But because we are so familiar with that truth, after all, we begin to believe that God's favor is due to us because, well, we're such good people. But he's better than, you know, most people out there. But are we really such good people? No. See, that's the trap that the Jews fell into. That's what they thought. And that's why the majority of the Jews rejected Christ when he came to earth. They no longer saw their own sinfulness. They boasted of the fact that they were children of Abraham. And that is why Israel was no longer a branch of the vine. They were broken off. And others were grafted in, as Paul says in his letter to the Romans, chapter 9. Brothers and sisters, the same thing can happen to the church of today, to you and to me. It can also happen that we think that, well, we're too good for the world. We attribute our material well-being to our own obedience, to our own inherent goodness. We attribute our peace also to ourselves because we are Christians and we don't see a need to share that. But listen to the warning of Paul. Paul says in Romans 11 verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Indeed, in the end, that is what happened to Israel. But let's be careful. It can also happen to us. Jonah should have been thankful that God wanted him to go to Nineveh and bring the message of salvation to that nation. He should have been thankful that God does not want to overlook their sin. For that means that he does not want to overlook his sin or the sin of his nation either. Jonah was on the wrong track. The sad thing is that once you set your mind on the wrong course of action then you think you're on the right track. But the devil has a way of fooling us. He whispers in our ears and tells us that everything adds up, that it is logical that things should go this way. No doubt that's the way it was for Jonah. He goes to Joppa, and lo and behold, he finds a ship going to Tarshish, a ship going in exact opposite direction. And now he starts fooling himself. He sees the hand of God in this. He thinks, well, God has provided a ship for me to go into the opposite direction, didn't he? He made me part of his people and even made me a prophet. Surely God is with me. By the time Jonah went on board, he was fully convinced that it was the right thing to do. That's why he could also sleep so soundly as we can read further on in the chapter. I'm sure that's also the way it was with Eve. She knew that the fruit was forbidden. But then she saw that the fruit was good for food. No no doubt by the time she took a bite of the forbidden fruit, she was convinced that it was the right thing to do. God had put the tree there, didn't he? And the fruit is good for consumption. Isn't it? But why not? How many, t- how many of you here find yourself confirmed 
in your sins. Think about it. Think about the things that no longer bother you, but which deep down you know they should. Are you fooling yourself? Well, if you're not too comfortable right now, that's understandable. That's the way it should be. You have been given a Christian conscience. You know what the Bible wants. You know God's law. And hope that the Lord, your God, will find a way of confronting you with your sin. And pray that you will have the strength to change. For brothers and sisters, you don't want to have a false sense of security. It can be deadly. The Lord is about to send a mighty wind as Jonah makes his way to Tarshish. God does not leave Jonah alone. And that's the comfort that we may have all, also this morning. God will not allow you and me to wallow in our sins. And the same thing is true about the rest of the world. And that's why he comes with his warning. But how do we warn others? How do we witness? Well, we show that we care. We don't dismiss other sinners. Even how bad in our eyes they may be. Instead, we show them who God is, namely the God of love who wants all men to come to repentance. For he's also the God of wrath, the God of anger, anger against sin. You know the wonderful thing, don't you? God visited his wrath, his anger upon his own son. And therefore all who believe in him can find mercy and peace. And only they will receive eternal life. God shows his mercy to all those who humble themselves before God and who acknowledge that they deserve to be punished. Do you ever pray that way in your own prayers? Oh Lord, I'm such a sinner. I know I'm dead without you, without your mercy. Please forgive me. Brothers and sisters, we all stand condemned before God. And so we're not any better than anyone else. It is only because of Jesus' death on the cross that we may have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. You see, that's the wonderful thing about the discovery of your sins. The more we realize our own sins, the more we realize how great our redemption is, and the more we are driven to live lives of thankfulness. The more we want to keep God's laws, even though we sin against him all the time, even though we can't keep them. But we know that God will forgive us if we do not want to live in our sins. And the more we would want to share, to share that glorious gospel of salvation. That God is merciful and just to all that call upon him in faith. In humility. Amen.